This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 3 On Mr. Rudyard Kipling and Making the World Small. There is no such thing on earth as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that can exist is an uninterested person. Nothing is more keenly required than a defense of bores. When Byron divided humanity into the bores and the bored, he omitted to notice that the higher qualities exist entirely in the bores, the lower qualities in the bored, among whom he counted himself. The boar, by his starry enthusiasm, his solemn happiness, may, in some sense, have proved himself poetical. The board has certainly proved himself prosaic. We might no doubt find it a nuisance to count all the blades of grass or all the leaves of the trees, but this would not be because of our boldness or gaiety, but because of our lack of boldness and gaiety. The board would go onward bold and gay, and find the blades of grass as splendid as the swords of an army. The boar is stronger and more joyous than we are. He is a demigod. Nay, he is a god. For it is the gods who do not tire of the iteration of things. To them the nightfall is always new, and the last rose as red as the first. The sense that everything is poetical is a thing solid and absolute. It is not a mere matter of phraseology or persuasion. It is not merely true. It is ascertainable. Men may be challenged to deny it. Men may be challenged to mention anything that is not a matter of poetry. I remember a long time ago a sensible sub-editor coming up to me with a book in his hand called Mr. Smith, or The Smith Family, or some such thing. He said, well, you won't get any of your damned mysticism out of this or words to that effect. I am happy to say that I undeceived him, but the victory was too obvious and easy. In most cases the name is unpoetical, although the fact is poetic. In the case of Smith the name is so poetical that it must be an arduous and heroic matter for the man to live up to it. The name of Smith is the name of the one trade that even kings respected. It could claim half the glory of the Arma Virumque which all epics acclaimed. The spirit of the smithy is so close to the spirit of song that it has mixed in a million poems, and every blacksmith is a harmonious blacksmith. Even the village children feel that in some dim way the smith is poetic, as the grocer and the cobbler are not poetic. When they feast on the dancing sparks and deafening blows in the cavern of that creative violence, the brute repose of nature the passionate cunning of man, the strongest of earthly metals, the weirdest of earthly elements, the unconquerable iron subdued by its only conqueror, when the wheel and the plowshare, the sword and the seam hammer, the arraying of armies and the whole legend of arms, all these things are written briefly indeed, but quite legibly, on the visiting card of Mr. Smith. Yet our novelists call their hero Elmer Valence, which means nothing, or Vernon Raymond, which means nothing, when it is in their power to give him this sacred name of Smith. 
this name made of iron and flame. It would be very natural if a certain hauteur, a certain carriage of the head, a certain curl of the lip distinguished everyone whose name is Smith. Perhaps it does. I trust so. Whoever else are parvenus, the Smiths are not parvenus. From the darkest dawn of history, this clan has gone forth to battle. Its trophies are on every hand, its name is everywhere, it is older than the nations, and its sign is the hammer of Thor. But as I also remarked, it is not quite the usual case. It is common enough that common things should be poetical. It is not so common that common names should be poetical. In most cases, it is the name that is the obstacle. A great many people talk as if this claim of ours, that all things are poetical, were a merely literary ingenuity, a play on words. Precisely the contrary is true. It is the idea that some things are not poetical, which is literary, which is a mere product of words. The word signal box is unpoetical, but the thing signal box is not unpoetical. It is a place where men, in an agony of vigilance, light blood red and see green fires to keep other men from death. That is the plain, genuine description of what it is. The prose only comes in with what it is called. The word pillar box is unpoetical, but the thing pillar box is not unpoetical. It is the place to which friends and lovers commit their messages, conscious that when they have done so they are sacred and not to be touched, not only by others, but even religious touch by themselves. That red turret is one of the last of the temples posting a letter and getting married are among the few things left that are entirely romantic, for to be entirely romantic a thing must be irrevocable. We think a pillar-box prosaic because there is no rhyme to it. We think a pillar-box unpoetical because we have never seen it in a poem. But the bold fact is entirely on the side of poetry. A signal-box is only called a signal-box. It is a house of life and death. A pillar-box is only called a pillar-box. It is a sanctuary of human words. If you think the name of Smith prosaic, it is not because you are practical and sensible. It is because you are too much affected with literary refinements. The name shouts poetry at you. If you think of it otherwise, it is because you are steeped and sodden with verbal reminiscences, because you remember everything in punch or comic cuts about Mr. Smith being drunk or Mr. Smith being henpecked. All these things are given to you poetical. It is only by a long and elaborate process of literary effort that you have made them prosaic. Now the first and fairest thing to say about Rudyard Kipling is that he has borne a brilliant part in thus recovering the lost provinces of poetry. He has not been frightened by that brutal materialistic air which clings only to words. He has pierced through to the romantic, imaginative matter of the things themselves. He has perceived the significance and philosophy of steam and of slang. Steam may be, if you like, a dirty by-product of science. Slang may be, if you like, a dirty by-product of language. But at least he has been among the few who saw the divine parentage of these things and knew that where there is smoke, there is fire. That is, 
that wherever there is the foulest of things, there is also the purest. Above all, he has had something to say, a definite view of things to utter, and that always means that a man is fearless and faces everything. For the moment we have a view of the universe, we possess it. Now the message of Rudyard Kipling, that upon which he has really concentrated, is the only thing worth worrying about in him or in any other man. He has often written bad poetry, like Wordsworth. He has often said silly things, like Plato. He has often given way to mere political hysteria, like Gladstone. But no one can reasonably doubt that he means steadily and sincerely to say something, and that only serious question is, what is that which he has tried to say? Perhaps the best way of stating this fairly will be to begin with that element which has been most insisted by himself and by his opponents. I mean his interest in militarism. But when we are seeking for the real merits of a man, it is unwise to go to his enemies, and much more foolish to go to himself. Now, Mr. Kipling is certainly wrong in his worship of militarism, but his opponents are, generally speaking, quite as wrong as he. The evil of militarism is not that it shows certain men to be fierce and haughty and excessively warlike. The evil of militarism is that it shows most men to be tame and timid and excessively peaceable. The professional soldier gains more and more power as the general courage of a community declines. Thus the Praetorian Guard becomes more and more important in Rome as Rome becomes more and more luxurious and feeble. The military man gains the civil power in proportion as the civilian loses the military virtues. And as it was in ancient Rome, so it is in contemporary Europe. There never was a time when nations were more militarist. There never was a time when men were less brave. All ages and all epochs have sung of arms and of the man, but we have affected simultaneously the deterioration of the man and the fantastic perfection of the arms. Militarism demonstrated the decadence of Rome, and it demonstrates the decadence of Russia. And unconsciously Mr. Kipling has proved this, and proved it admirably. For in so far as his work is earnestly understood, the military trade does not by any means emerge as the most important or attractive. He has not written so well about soldiers as he had about railway men, or bridge builders, or even journalists. The fact is that what attracts Mr. Kipling to militarism is not the idea of courage, but the idea of discipline. There was far more courage to the square mile in the Middle Ages, when no king had a standing army, but every man had a bow or sword. But the fascination of the standing army upon Mr. Kipling is not courage, which is scarcely interests him, but discipline, which is, when all is said and done, his primary theme. The modern army is not a miracle of courage. It has not enough opportunities, owing to the cowardice of everybody else. But it is really a miracle of organization, and that is the truly Kiplingite ideal. Kipling's subject is not that valor, which properly belongs to war, but that interdependence and efficiency, which belongs quite as much to engineers or sailors or mules or railway engines. And thus it is that when he writes of engineers or sailors or mules or steam engines, he writes at his best. The real poetry, the true romance which Mr. Kipling has taught, is the romance of the division of labor 
and the discipline of all the trades. He sings the arts of peace much more accurately than the arts of war, and his main contention is vital and valuable. Everything is military in the sense that everything depends upon obedience. There is no perfect Epicurean corner, there is no perfectly irresistible place. Everywhere men have made the way for us with sweat and submission. We may fling ourselves into a hammock in a fit of divine carelessness, but we're glad that the net-maker did not make the hammock in a fit of divine carelessness. We may jump upon a child's rocking-horse for a joke, but we're glad that the carpenter did not leave the legs of it unglued for a joke. So far from having merely preached that a soldier cleaning his sidearm is to be adored because he is military, Kipling at his best and clearest has preached that the baker baking loaves and the tailor cutting coats is as military as anybody. Being devoted to this multitudinous vision of duty, Mr. Kipling is naturally a cosmopolitan. He happens to find his examples in the British Empire, but almost any other empire would do as well, or indeed any other highly civilized country. That which he admires in the British Army he would find even more apparent in the German Army. That which he desires in the British Police he would find flourishing in the French Police. The idea of discipline is not the whole of life, but it is spread over the whole of the world, and the worship of it tends to confirm in Mr. Kipling a certain note of worldly wisdom, of the experience of the wanderer, which is one of the genuine charms of his best work. The great gap in his mind is what may be roughly called the lack of patriotism. That is to say, he lacks altogether the facility of attaching himself to any cause or community finely and tragically, for all finality must be tragic. He admires England, but he does not love her. For we admire things with reasons, but love them without reasons. He admires England because she is strong, not because she is English. There is no harshness in saying this, for, to do him justice, he avows it with his usual picturesque candor. In a very interesting poem he says that, If England was what England seems, that is, weak and inefficient, if England were not what, as he believes she is, that is, powerful and practical, how quick we'd chuck her, but she ain't. He admits, that is, that his devotion is the result of a criticism, and this is quite enough to put it in another category altogether from the patriotism of the Boers, whom he hounded down in South Africa. In speaking of the really patriotic peoples, such as the Irish, he has some difficulty in keeping a shrill irritation out of his language. The frame of mind, which he really describes with beauty and nobility, is the frame of mind of the cosmopolitan man who has seen men and cities. For to admire, and for to see, or to be old, this world so wide. He is a perfect master of that light melancholy with which a man looks back on having been the citizen of many communities, of that light melancholy which a man looks back on having been the lover of many women. He is the philanderer of the nations. But a man may have learnt much about women in flirtations, and still be ignorant of first love. A man may have known as many lands as Ulysses, and still be ignorant of patriotism. Mr. Rudyard Kipling has asked, in a celebrated epigram, what they can know of England who know England only. It is a far deeper and sharper question to ask, what can they know of England 
who know only the world. For the world does not include England any more than it includes the church. The moment we care for anything deeply, the world that is, or all the other miscellaneous interests, become our enemy. Christians showed it when they talked of keeping oneself unspotted from the world. But lovers talk of it just as much when they talk of the world well lost. Astronomically speaking, I understand that England is situated on the world. Similarly, I suppose that the church was a part of the world, and even the lovers inhabitants of that orb. But they all felt a certain truth. The truth that the moment you love anything, the world becomes your foe. Thus Mr. Kipling does certainly know the world. He is a man of the world, with all the narrowness that belongs to those imprisoned in that planet. He knows England as an intelligent English gentleman knows Venice. He has been to England a great many times. He has stopped there for long visits. But he does not belong to it, or to any place. And the proof of it is this, that he thinks of England as a place. The moment we are rooted in a place, the place vanishes. We live like a tree with the whole strength of the universe. The globe-trotter lives in a smaller world than the peasant. He is always breathing an air of locality. London is a place to be compared to Chicago. Chicago is a place to be compared to Timbuktu. But Timbuktu is not a place, since there, at least, live men who regard it as the universe, and breathe not an air of locality, but the winds of the world. The man in the saloon steamer has seen all the races of men, and he is thinking of the things that divide men, diet, dress, decorum, rings in the nose as in Africa, or in the ears as in Europe, blue paint among the ancients, or red paint among the modern Britons. The man in the cabbage field has seen nothing at all, but he is thinking of the things that unite men, hunger and babies, and the beauty of women, and the promise or menace, of the sky. Mr. Kipling, with all his merits, is the globe-trotter. He has not the patience to become part of anything. So great and genuine a man is not to be accused of a merely cynical cosmopolitanism. Still his cosmopolitanism is his weakness. That weakness is splendidly expressed in one of his finest poems, The Sestina of the Tramp Royal, in which a man declares that he can endure anything in the way of a hunger or a horror but not permanent presence in one place. In this there is certainly danger. The more dead and dry and dusty a thing is, the more it travels about. Dust is like this, and the thistledown, and the high commissioner in South Africa. Fertile things are somewhat heavier, like the heavy fruit of trees on the pregnant mud of the Nile. In the heated idleness of youth, we were all rather inclined to quarrel with the implication of that proverb which says that a rolling stone gathers no moss. We were inclined to ask, who wants to gather moss except silly old ladies? But for all that, we begin to perceive that the proverb is right. The rolling stone rolls echoing from rock to rock, but the rolling stone is dead. The moss is silent, because the moss is alive. The truth is that exploration and enlargement make the world smaller. The telegraph and the steamboat make the world smaller. The telescope makes the world smaller. It is only the microscope that makes it larger. Before long, the world will be cloven with a war between the telescopists and the microscopists. 
the first study large things and live in a small world the second study small things and live in a large world it is inspiring without doubt to whiz in a motor car round the earth to feel arabia as a whirl of sand or china as a flash of rice fields but arabia is not a whirl of sand and china is not a flash of rice fields they are ancient civilizations with strange virtues buried like treasures if we wish to understand them it must not be as tourists or inquirers it must be with the loyalty of children and the great patience of poets to conquer these places is to lose them the man standing in his own kitchen garden with a fairyland opening to the gate is the man with large ideas his mind creates distance the motor car stupidly destroys it moderns think of the earth as a globe as something one can easily get round the spirit of a schoolmistress this is shown in the odd mistake perpetually made about cecil rhodes his enemies say that he may have had large ideas but he was a bad man his friends say that he may have been a bad man but he certainly had large ideas the truth is that he was not a man essentially bad he was a man of much geniality and many good intentions but a man with singularly small views there is nothing large about painting the map red it is an innocent game for children it is just as easy to think in continents as to think in cobblestones the difficulty comes in when we seek to know the substance of either of them Rhodes' prophecies about the Boer resistance are an admirable comment on how the large ideas prosper when it is not a question of thinking and continence, but of understanding a few two-legged men. And under all this vast illusion of the cosmopolitan planet, with its empires and its Reuters agency, the real life of man goes on concerned with this tree or that temple, with this harvest or that drinking song, totally uncomprehended, totally untouched, and it watches from its splendid parochialism, possibly with a smile of amusement, motor-car civilization, going its triumphant way, outstripping time, consuming space, seeing all and seeing nothing, roaring on at last to the capture of the solar system, only to find the sun cockney and the stars suburban. End of chapter 3